Hello everybody, my name is Ben Schluter and welcome to episode 31 of Gold to Go. Last night there was a stream, it happened, there wasn't much on there. Um, yeah, cause like the last 30 minutes of it was just me talking about random arena football stuff. This will not be that way, I actually figured out something for it. This is what happens when you really don't want to talk about anything that, uh, relates to MLB because you don't watch it, but then you realize, oh god, this is stupid, we have to talk about it. But we're not going to talk about that first. Um, we're first going to talk about this quick college baseball story before we get into anything College World Series related. Um, LSU has its baseball head coach. Uh, they hired Jay Johnson, the head coach formerly at Arizona. He is the new LSU head baseball coach. He has absolutely no ties to the program. Yeah, like seriously, he's been a West Coast guy like his entire career, so, like, that's a thing, but, uh, his Arizona team this year was pretty good, though they did get bounced in the College World Series proper, uh, in two games, uh, but I'll talk about all the scorers later, uh, did a pretty decent job when it came to hitting, and by decent, I mean at the end of the season they had more runs than any team, just any of them, they were the second highest scoring team coming into the NCAA tournament, uh, their batting average was really good, um, and if there was one thing that we had a problem with last year, it was scoring runs, so maybe we can get that, we also apparently got this one guy, I don't know what position he plays, I just saw that he was, like, decommitting from Arizona, gonna follow his coach, uh, here, so that's cool, so let's talk about what's happened in Omaha, and what is happening over the next couple days, because the way things are working out is that by the time you hear the next podcast, the College World Series Finals will have concluded. But let's not do that. Let's talk about the games that have already happened. We start with the fact that I can't make predictions. Remember that whole I can't make predictions thing? I still can't make them, because I said that North Carolina State wasn't going to win. They beat Stanford 10-4, to because, you know, I'm smart and all. Then you had Vandy, they beat Arizona 7-6 in 12 innings. Uh, then UVA, the University of Virginia, they beat Tennessee 6-0. Well, 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 Tennessee. Look what happens when you don't play in a stadium that allows you to get so many home runs. It's harder, isn't it? Hmm. Seriously, though, UVA's been, like, very surprising this entire tournament. Wow. Uh, then Mississippi State, they beat Texas 2-1. Uh, just, wow. And then, in the first elimination game, Stanford knocked out Arizona 14-5. Then, in a game between two teams that were 1-0, NC State played Vanderbilt. Now, Vanderbilt started Jack Leiter, and he, uh, lasted eight innings. He had a great start. He had a bunch of strikeouts. I think he had 15 or so. Actually, that might have been Mississippi State, because in that Mississippi State-Texas game, there were a ton of strikeouts. Uh, I think Mississippi State set the team record for most strikeouts in a game the College World Series, so that's a big deal. Remember when I said that they didn't have pitching? Yeah, again, you really need to start taking my opinions with a grain of salt, especially when it comes to teams that, like, I barely watched, because again, no cable. Trust me, this is not happening with football this year. Oh, if you want to know what it's going to look like with football this year, you'll just have to wait and see, because I need to get everything set up for that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but... Let's talk about NC State and Vanderbilt. You see, Jack Leiter gave up one run. It was a solo home run. Vanderbilt um, decided to emulate their football team in the sense that they gave their defense absolutely no help and scored zero runs, and the game ended 1-0. I don't know how that happens. Just amazing, amazing pitching. 
there is a reason why uh, the Golden Spikes Award finalists, by the way, have been named the top three in line for the best player in college baseball, and all of them are pitchers. Two of them are on Vanderbilt. One is Kumar Rocker, one is Jack Leiter, the other one is Kevin Copps, who frankly should win the damn thing for being the best pitcher all year. Seriously, the dude's been a monster. I mean, him starting Game 3 of the Super Regionals was a really dumb idea, and you can blame the uh, head coach at Arkansas for that one, but you know, his, his ERA was still really good. He was still insane. But yeah, then you had the second elimination game of Omaha, which was Texas versus Tennessee, the battle for UT, and uh, Texas won it, so they'll be called UT until the next time these two teams meet up. That's right, UT beat Tennessee 8-4, so like I said, Tennessee was knocked out in two games. Huh, funny. Yeah. But in all seriousness, they had a really good season for what it's worth. Uh, who knows what they'll be next year? Who knows? It's going to be really interesting to see how Tennessee, if they can keep up this momentum from this year. Then, you have Mississippi State versus Virginia. These are, uh, well, these are two pretty good teams, you see. And Virginia was playing a damn good game when it came to pitching. Because I was looking at the uh, thingy, top of the eighth inning, and Mississippi State was down four. And they had as many hits as I had, which was zero. And uh, by the end of the eighth inning, it was six to five. Because Mississippi State decided to wake up and score runs. And gave up a run, but it didn't matter, and that was the final score. Six to five, just an incredible comeback victory. Then Vanderbilt was playing Stanford, and the winner of that game was alive, and the loser of that game was out. Game was tied 5-5. to Bottom of the ninth, there was a runner on second and a runner on third for Vanderbilt. And then Stanford, in all their infinite glory, threw a wild pitch. Game over, 6-5, to Vanderbilt survives. The defending champs live another day. And then, last night into literally this morning, it, it went late because of rain delays, uh, Texas knocked out UVA, they won 6-2, to two. so I believe there are two games, I think there's a game today and a game tomorrow, I don't know how this is working out, but I think the way this is supposed to go is either there's a game today and a game tomorrow, or no, that wouldn't make any sense, I think both games are today. This is what happens when you try the NCAA's website and it's a little weird and awkward, but here are the games that we got remaining. Now, this is still double elimination, so if the, let's just talk about these and then I'll tell you what happens. So, Vanderbilt's playing NC State, Texas is playing Mississippi State. Vanderbilt has one loss, Texas has one loss. So, if NC State beats Vanderbilt, then NC State's in the College World Series Final. If Mississippi State beats Texas, then Mississippi State's in the College World Series Final. And if Texas wins or Vanderbilt wins, then there's another game to be played. And that game is winner-take-all. Because again, you have to be double-eliminated. Now, whoever wins in these semifinals will move on to the finals, and the finals are a best-of-three series played over three days, like how normal things happen. Um, yes, all your losses reset. That's a nice thing they do. Uh, and that's played over Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday if necessary. Now, it should be noted that Mississippi State has never won a team national championship in the NCAA. Yeah. Wait. Excuse me one second. Pretty sure they haven't. I'm pretty sure they lost that one. Yeah. I know they haven't won one at the men's level. Uh, not even in... I don't believe in football. Um, so that's a big deal. 
Texas, meanwhile, has won six College World Series, the same number as LSU, so we need Mississippi State to beat them. Yep. So that's a thing that has happened. Now, let's move into some NFL news that came out just yesterday. Uh, what's the first one I'm going to talk about? The Steelers did a thing. So David DeCastro got released, but he's contemplating retirement, you see. Uh, he's been a great Pro Bowl guard, but, I mean, the dude's contemplating retirement, and it saves like eight to nine million, I think it's like eight and a half million dollars for the Steelers cap, so that's helpful. Who did they replace him with? Trey Turner. That's right. Trey Turner. Now, Trey Turner, if you don't know, went to Louisiana State University. Go Tigers. And um, he was a beast, to say the least. This dude came out after his redshirt sophomore year. People thought that was a bit too early. So then the Panthers drafted him, and it turns out it wasn't too early. He was blocking everyone, and he was doing a great job. Then last year, he went to the Los Angeles Chargers, and uh, that didn't go so well, because he was there for a whole year, and it was terrible. He was one of the worst things there, but maybe that was just a bad environment. Who knows? He's now with the Steelers. Somebody please explain to me what's going on in Pittsburgh. So, and I've mentioned this before, the Steelers' offensive coordinator is Matt Canada. Now, I know Matt Canada because he was LSU's offensive coordinator in 2017. And I still have the nightmares of us running jet sweeps. Granted, we had DJ Chark, so at least, you know, it wasn't that incompetent. But, like, there was so much motion. And we had, like, a decent offensive line. And we also had a mobile quarterback, Danny Etling. A reminder, Danny Etling is a guy who single-handedly cost, like, three NFL players their jobs. Because he had this 85 or 86-yard touchdown run in the preseason, and it was, like, game four, and, like, the, there were, like, two or three cornerbacks on the Giants, he was playing with the uh, Patriots at the time, who got cut just right after that game, and it's thought that that was the play, so, you know, Danny Etling's pretty good, but he was mobile, and if we know anything about uh, Ben Roethlisberger, he's not mobile. Again, not 100% sure what Matt Canada's offense going to look like, because he was only at LSU for one year, he apparently looked pretty good at NC State, or I'm pretty sure it was NC State. Um, it was at Pitt. He was at Pitt, so he's got that Pittsburgh connection. Uh, and he was working with the Steelers. I believe he was their quarterback's coach, which, you know, uh, that's a great sign when you're the quarterback's coach of a team that had Ben Roethlisberger looking like a noodle-armed quarterback. We can only say that this will happen. But of course, that isn't the only major NFL news. In fact, it wasn't the biggest one that everyone was talking about. And I'm not talking about Carl Nassib, because frankly, like, I'll just get this one, because I didn't talk about it last night, because I honestly thought it was... I said it wasn't worthy of talking about, because, like, you know, I'm dumb that way, and I didn't think about it, because it just washed over me. If you didn't know, a defensive end, Carl Nassib, who I kept forgetting his name, because he's got a brother, and his brother played quarterback for the Saints uh, during the preseason. I think it's Ryan Nassib. Uh, he was a third-string quarterback for the Saints, like, a few years ago. So, I kept getting their names confused. <laughs> that's that's embarrassing, I know, but, like, I'm bad with names sometimes. You can't be 100%. So, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be embarrassed, and also, I totally forgot. So, apologies for that. Let's talk about this. He came out. Uh, yes, he's the first openly gay NFL, active NFL player. We all remember the Michael Sam stuff, where he was drafted, but he never played a down 
uh, in the regular season. This guy has, and he's been playing for a long time. He's got 20 and a half sacks on his career. He's 28. I think he's been in the league for like six years now. He's been pretty decent. Uh, he's also a really financially savvy guy, as people have said, because, like, see, I don't watch Hard Knocks, but other people have, and they said, like, he was really good on Hard Knocks, and he knew what he was talking about. So that's cool. So, yeah, this is a big deal. I mean, someday this hopefully won't be a big deal, because, you know, a dude is just saying that he is who he is, and that shouldn't be a big deal. But because of stupidity in this country and across the world, it is a big deal. So, you know, congrats to you for pushing past all the stupidity in this world to be brave enough to say the thing that nobody should have to ever be, feel brave to have to say that I am who I am. Because that's dumb and, like, stupid. I just don't think it should, like, the world is dumb for making that, like, a hard thing. Because, like, come on. It should be about as difficult, and it should be about as, like, like, and this would be in an ideal world, it should be about as difficult as saying what, you know, you're a fan of this team. That's it. Shouldn't be that difficult, but we live in a world where that's not true, and this guy doing this is a big deal, and hopefully someday we really won't have to care about it. So, yeah. And, uh... Speaking of things that, you know, we shouldn't have had to care about, but, you know, we do because of one reason or another. And I know this is a terrible transition, but, you know, I couldn't think of anything. The NFL has decided to change their rules on helmet colors. You see how terrible a transition that was? Yeah, apologies for that. Um, but seriously, why was it that the NFL just wouldn't let teams... Change the color of their helmets. Have an alternate color. I don't know. Seriously, it was so stupid. But now they're going to let them. Uh, so teams have to submit a one. They're allowed one different color. They have to submit that by July 31st of this year. And it'll start for the 2022 season. Um, there are stipulations in the memo basically saying that the helmet has to be... Um, it has to go with your uniform. So it has to be part of like an alternate... Uh, it has to be like a throwback or like a color rush. Um, the logo on the helmet has to be historically accurate in the sense that um, it has to be a historic logo. Um, if it's a throwback, it has to be historically accurate. If it's like a color rush, it can have some differences. But what this means is that like the Buccaneers can go back to that creamsicle look, which, you know, I don't know how we ever thought that was good in the 70s. The only reason I think they ever went with it was because Florida's hot, and orange really does help. A, B, University of Miami, I guess? But they were in Tampa. That's weird. Um, yeah, so the creamsicle can come back. The Kelly Green uh, for the Eagles, the old Eagles stuff. The, the Cowboys wearing the white helmets on Thanksgiving, which they used to do. Um, the Saints won't have to worry about this because the Saints have basically the same helmet color they've had forever. Like, it's really not going to be that difficult. Plus, why would we do it? We have the best color rush uniforms. No, that's not un that's not biased. But yeah, so this is a cool, stupid thing that never should have been a problem. Yeah, I really gotta apologize for it. I don't know why I'm apologizing except for the fact that I feel like it was like really dumb. But you know. I don't know. I think it's time to make a terrible transition because um 
it's time to get into the major topic of today's podcast, and that is the NCAA's decision, uh, or decisive loss, uh, handed down by the Supreme Court. Yes, they lost 9 nothing because three field goals was all that was necessary to defeat them. Who is this? Vanderbilt? Yeah, I know a cheap shot of Vanderbilt really isn't helping us here, but whatever. Uh, so, the NCAA, the, I'm sorry, I think it's Alston v. NCAA was the name of the case. Um, I'm hoping that I got the names on the right side. I'm 99% sure, and that's what I wrote down. So, <laughs> it'd be embarrassing if I didn't. But you know what else is embarrassing? That loss and just how bad that loss is. Kind of, not really. Let's get a little bit of a deeper dive into what happened. So, first, let's talk about the basics of it. So, the NCAA cannot put as many limitations on education-related benefits um, as they wanted to. They appealed, and they lost. Um, so this mainly applies to stuff like you got your paid internships, you got your post-grad scholarships. Um, think about things a normal student can do that isn't involving, like, compensation. Like, a normal student could do this, and the NCAA said, nah, you guys can't because you're athletes. And the a Supreme Court was like, what? That doesn't make any s- No? Hold on a minute. No. No. And affirmatively, no. So, that's the first part about it. But, oh boy, is that the smallest part? Because the NCAA didn't just lose that part. That was a small bit. <laughs> they couldn't have imagined that they'd lose um, this part where, oh, it turns out you're not exempt from antitrust legislation. The thing you were desperately hoping you were. How do you feel about that? They probably don't feel very good. Oh, did I mention that the NCAA spent like $73 million on this case? Oh, yeah. It's bad. $73 million. I couldn't imagine spending $73 million on something and then losing like that. Seriously, I couldn't because, like, I don't have $73 million. Although I'd really like to have $73 million. If someone's just willing to lend me $73 million for, like, literally nothing, I'll probably think you're a scammer. Um, but, you know, $73 million down the drain. And they're not immune from antitrust suits. You know, like, basically every other sports league. Uh, so, as a part of reading the whole thing, yes, I read all 45 pages of this. I read all 45 pages of this, so you can call me a person who had time to read it. Um, they kept mentioning in there this Radovich, I believe it's Radovich v. NFL, which was a court case from, I believe it was decided in 1957. Don't know exactly when it was filed, but what I do know is it was not the first case where, uh, you know, someone was filing a case against a major sports league. We have... 1922, uh, which was the one, there was a case in 1922, uh, and that's the one that gave Major League Baseball its antitrust exemption, and basically this case was filed in much the same manner to call out the NFL for being, like, anti-competitive. Uh, it was in the wake of the downfall of the AAFC, the All-America Football Conference, which was the first truly direct competitor to the NFL, uh, in any real stage, uh, and yeah, so the NFL kind of sort of didn't win that whole we're not, I mean, we're exempt from antitrust things. Because part of, and this was not the only one, there were like three, uh, there were two others. I didn't read out, I didn't read about the others because neither of them had to do with the NFL. And like football is cooler to me. And one of them had to do with boxing and, you know, I don't care about boxing. Um, but I do know they're all related in one way. They had to do with antitrust law and sports. And basically what the Supreme Court said was like, yeah, so the NFL isn't exempt from antitrust laws. Also, we may or may not have screwed up in 1922. 
Because that ruling in 1922 was stupid, from my perspective. Note, I am not a lawyer. I am not of any legal expertise. But giving Major League Baseball an antitrust exemption because it's incidental to their business that games have to take place across state lines seems a little bit much. And the Supreme Court in the 1950s basically said, yeah, that probably was a bit too far, but it's been like 30 years and nothing's come about against it. And like, there's been no laws passed. So it's at this point, stupidly legal precedent, because that's how legal precedent can go. You rule stupidly once and it becomes the law of the land forever. The law is a weird thing. I, reading through that, uh, reading through the whole decision, they had to mention how, like, certain parts of this agreement are necessary. You need to be able to define the number of players on the field and the time of the game. And it's like, yeah, no shit. And then I realized, this is the law. You always have to say what's going on here. You have to make sure you spell out everything, because apparently everyone is a complete and utter moron. That's what I feel. So, yeah. That whole 1950s case, they used that as basis. The Supreme Court used that as basis to basically say, you're not, you're not exempt from antitrust legislation. Which is unfortunate. Because the NCAA had really been banking on the fact that they were. Because there were basically three interpretations coming into this case about how the NCAA had to deal with antitrust laws. Two of them worked in the NCAA's favor. One of them didn't. Can you guess which one they got? You're right, it's the one that didn't work in their favor. So, I'm gonna get the names of the, uh, courts wrong, unless I double-check something for a tiny bit, which probably is a good idea. Hey, look at that, I found it. Yes. Apologies. So, you have the first one is from the Third Circuit, uh, the Third and the Sixth, circuits, excuse me, it is two, uh, basically, they ruled that the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is the most basic founding antitrust law on the books in the United States, uh, didn't apply to the NCAA because it only regulates commercial activity, and the NCAA was arguing, and these courts both agreed, that this is amateur, so it's not a commercial enterprise. I mean, like, that's bullshit, but, you know, whatever. Um, that, yeah, that's already been out of favor. So then you have the second one. The second one actually comes from another famous case that I'm going to have to mention right now, and it's called Board of uh, NCAA v. Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, also known as that thing that allowed college football games to get on TV and why the Big 12 has, like, a big college football deal. Seriously, it's the reason why we have so much money in college football to the level we have it. Like, there's reasons why it's billions of dollars in college football. And that case basically said it. Uh, so, in there, they said that the NCAA needed some stuff. I'm not going to mention the exact stuff, because I'm actually mentioning that later, because it's a really big thing that the courts talked about. And then the third one has to deal with that O'Bannon lawsuit. If you don't know who O'Bannon is, his name is Ed O'Bannon. He's a guy who was really good at UCLA. How good was he at UCLA? Oh, I don't know. I think they retired his number at UCLA. But he was also really annoyed that he was in a video game. I believe it was NCAA Basketball 10. Um, because they put him in the game for one of the historic teams. Cause, and I own the game, so I can tell you this from experience. Um, they have, like, I think it's 64 historic teams in there, and you can do, like, a historic uh, NCAA tournament. And so they had the 94. 
four team that won the NCAA tournament, and it was him. And you knew it was him because it was a bald guy with his number and his face. And he was kind of pissed off because he saw, like, one of his friend's kids playing the game, and he was like, that's me. Why don't I have money for this? Which, granted, um, is a reasonable thing to think because that game did not sell. They made another one afterward. It was clearly commercially viable. And in that one, when he sued, and that went to the same court of appeals that this went to, uh, they basically said, yeah, NCAA, you have some ladder. You you have some... Uh, I'm trying to think of a good word here. You can do some of this stuff. Some of you, what you want to do is reasonable. Others, not, not so much. And so... Like, we're going to subject you to have to deal with some of it. And the Supreme Court came out and basically said, yeah, uh, the O'Bannon one is the one that we're going to deal with. So now you get to have some room with handling amateurism. You don't get full leeway. Just because you're amateur doesn't mean you're exempt from antitrust suits. Uh, So now they have to go through a full rule of reason analysis in basically every single lawsuit, including the ones that are currently filed against them. And if you don't know what a rule of reason analysis is, don't worry, I didn't know either. And to make it simple, because this is how I understand it, um, it's a thing that you have to prove that what's happening here violates antitrust. That what you're doing is anti-competitive, that, um, and it involves both parties. But um, in this case, the NCAA, in, this, uh, in the case we're talking about in Alston, They had to provide the first part and the third part, whereas Alston and that party had to provide the second part. Um, And God, I am oversimplifying this because I do not understand it fully. I am not a lawyer, I am not a law student, and I have not yet taken media law, so this is going to be fun to learn about. So, just understand this. Their cases are now more expensive than ever. Oh, by the way, one of the major things in there that they mentioned at the start is that there's never been a definition of amateurism. The NCAA's never really had a set definition. They keep changing it. Again. And again. And again. And again. And again. They keep expanding scholarships. They keep expanding... The main thing I didn't know about, and I am shocked I didn't, and I'm not shocked I didn't, um, at the same time, just because you never know what you don't know. You never shine if you don't glow. That's not how the song goes. But in 1974, the NCAA changed its rules, and now it explains stuff that, you know makes things make more sense. So, if you're a pro athlete in one sport, you're allowed to play college sports as long as you're playing a different sport. So, why was Kyler Murray allowed to play football at Oklahoma even though he'd signed with the Oakland Athletics and gotten his signing bonus? Because he wasn't a pro football player yet. Why is Zach Von Rosenberg, he was a former minor league baseball pitcher and he was our punter for the last few years. Why was he allowed to come back to college? Because it was football. He'd never turned pro in football. That's what it is. It's been around since the 70s, which actually kind of shocks me that it's been around that long. But, um, yeah, that's that's amateur in no way. And they mentioned how it just keeps going and going and going in the 2010s, how they kept changing stuff. There's never been a set definition of what amateurism is. And that part doesn't really shock me that much. Because there never was supposed to be. Because... The point of the NCAA was just to shield universities from government oversight. Let's be clear here. The NCAA can trace its origins back to the 1900s. When I say 1900s, I mean 1900s the decade. 1905, when Teddy Roosevelt basically forced 
the introduction of the Forward Pass, and a bunch of Ivy League schools formed this union of schools that would create rules. Um, and they were specifically forming it just so that the government wouldn't come in and, you know, create oversight. And so eventually when you get the foundation of the true NCAA, which is around 1939, um, that's what they exist for. They create the term student-athlete to prevent themselves from the universities do this so that they don't have to pay workers' comp. They do this so that they can exploit things. There's a reason why the NCAA barely has any enforcement power, because who gives them enforcement power? The schools. And why would they give the NCAA enforcement power when they're the ones cheating? Just take a look at the entire Southwest Conference in the decade of the 1980s. You know, the conference who was cheating so hard. My goodness, I mean, you thought SMU was bad? And you, you were right. Yeah, SMU was really, really bad, but they were made an example of. The NCAA needed to take someone down because it was bad, because it was happening in a lot of places. They saw SMU. Um, SMU, they were like, okay, SMU, y'all are doing it way too much. We're going to stop you for one time. Wink, wink. Don't do it again. Wink, wink. And then they kept doing it, and the NCAA was like, okay, so we're just going to shut you guys down because you're really ruining our image. NCAA doesn't care. NCAA never has, never will. They're a load of crap. But, you know, at least things don't get any worse for them, except for the fact that they just lost their biggest defense. So, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, he wrote the majority opinion here. He wrote the opinion here. There was no any... There was another opinion. There was a concurring opinion, but that's not legal precedent. We'll get to that. Um, and... He called out the NCAA's argument that courts should rule in their favor, the NCAA's favor, uh, on these matters due to this part of NCAA v. Board of Regents, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and this is the full quote of that whole thing. Quote, The NCAA plays a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. There can be no question but that it needs ample latitude to play that role, or that the preservation of the student-athlete in higher education adds richness and diversity to intercollegiate athletics and is entirely consistent with the goals of the Sherman Act. And the main way they called that was the ample latitude principle. Here is the response within the actual text of the uh, opinion. Once more, we cannot agree. This is the quote. Board of Regents may suggest that courts should take care when assessing the NCAA's restraints on student-athlete compensation, sensitive to their pro-competitive possibilities. But these remarks do not suggest that courts must reflexively reject all challenges to the NCAA's compensation restrictions. Student-athlete compensation rules were not even at issue in Board of Regents. Yeah, I should note here that, and I don't think I explained this earlier, NCAA v. Board of Regents was about television contracts because Oklahoma wanted to televise its games and the NCAA had a limit on what teams could be on TV. I think you'd only be on TV like once a year. Um, where they very, very, very heavily controlled how uh, teams appeared on television. And if you know about... I think they could enforce for a little bit after this. I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty sure about this. They could enforce television bans, and they did. I don't know when they stopped doing it, but I was reading about um, Oklahoma State's whole recruiting violations in the 1980s. The reason why uh, Barry Sanders was allowed to uh, leave early, because he was a junior, uh, gonna be a senior. He was not a graduated senior, and they weren't allowed to declare for the draft. The NFL gave him an exemption because 
you know, Oklahoma State was on a two-year bowl ban. They were on a two-year television ban. They were on four years of probation. So they gave them an exemption, even though I was reading the New York Times article from January when they uh, gave it down, and they were like, yeah, he says he's going to come back. Well, that wasn't true, was it? So yeah, Board of Regents, absolutely nothing to do with the NCAA's compensation uh, restrictions. Okay? So, back to this. And the court made it clear it was only assuming the reasonableness of the NCAA's restrictions. Uh, the reasonableness. It is reasonable to assume that most of the regulatory controls of the NCAA are justifiable means of fostering competition among amateur athletic teams and are therefore pro-competitive. Accordingly, the court... Oh, by the way, that was a quote directly from it. Should have mentioned that. Accordingly, the court simply did not have occasion to declare, nor did it declare, the NCAA's compensation restrictions pro-competitive both in 1984 and forevermore. Say so, yeah. Now, when I say that it was one of the NCAA's most important defenses, um, yeah, they used it as a crutch for a while. This demolishes that defense. Here's how much it, what it did. So, someone went through and they looked at 35 cases that uh, cited Board of Regents that had the NCAA as either a plaintiff or as a defendant. Of those 35, the NCAA won 27 of them. Yeah. Um, what? It's insane how much they use that as a crutch. Yeah. And there was a bunch of other stuff in there that I didn't feel the need to talk about because, you know, um, things. But there was also this part. Because Brett Kavanaugh, a person I generally disagree with on a lot of things, wrote this concurring opinion. It has no legal precedent. It is, like, not an official thing. But it's his opinion, and he really wanted to express it. And, um, he really wanted to express it. I mean, he really, really wanted to express it. This dude was not pulling any punches. He was pissed. Apparently, he's a really big basketball fan, too. So, he has, like, a good reason. It's like, okay. I can, okay. Okay. So, I'm gonna read you some actual direct quotes from this. This is the best one, of course. The NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student-athletes in innocuous labels, but the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. All of the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyer salaries in the name of providing legal services out of a love for the law. Love of the law, excuse me. Hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' income in order to create a purer form of helping the sick. News organizations cannot join forces to curtail pay to reporters to preserve a tradition of public-minded journalism. Wait, that's not what they're doing already? Sorry, that joke about journalism salaries was brought to you by person who's in that field, um, or studying to go into that field. Someone pay me for this! <laughs> Movie studios cannot collude to slash benefits to camera crews to kindle a spirit of amateurism in Hollywood. And then another quote later on, businesses like the NCAA cannot avoid the consequences of price-fixing labor by incorporating price-fixed labor into the definition of the product. Okay, bro, go off. I didn't realize you were, like, super pro-workforce or something. Like, seriously, that doesn't not sound pro-worker to you? I mean, at least it, and, uh, it doesn't sound pro-worker, let me rephrase that. It sounds anti-stupidity. It's anti, th like, this is dumb. 
This is really dumb. You literally cannot do this. This is antithetical to anything and everything in American history. I mean, you know, America isn't about not paying people. It's about barely paying people. That's not what he said. That's just me making a joke. He actually made a point in there about how, like, it was disenfranchising African Americans, which was something I did not expect from Brett Kavanaugh. Like, some of the stuff in there was really, what? Uh, is this the same Brett Kavanaugh that I remember from the whole Senate hearing? Because, like, it's a different guy. But then again, you never know how people are until they write things down in, uh, you know, their legal opinion. Now, he brought up some really interesting questions, too, later on, which I really liked uh, that, you know, he brought up. Mainly because they're things I've thought about. One of them is a question I've actually asked before several times on here, if you've listened. Um, how would, like, so here they are. How would paying greater compensation to student-athletes affect non-revenue-raising sports? Which I think I've asked before, but if I haven't, I've definitely thought about it. Uh, could student-athletes in some sports but not others receive compensation? Which is basically the same question. How would any compensation regime comply with Title IX? A question I've asked, like, several times. How does this fit in with Title IX? Now, granted, if we're going to actually look at the numbers, the earning, uh, the earnings potential for a female athlete is, or, yeah, a female athlete uh, in a women's sport uh, is higher than for an athlete in a men's sport. Uh, I don't know why, because I'm not an economist. If I were an economist, you know, I wouldn't be here. I'd be hating my life more than I already do. Apologies to all economists out there. You guys are like meteorologists, except with math and not physics. Let's, let's be very clear on that. In the sense that you both do forecasts. Come on. You gotta understand that. And also because you're paid to be wrong. Um, I shouldn't be shitting on economists, but also I'm going to. Um, yeah. If paying student-athletes requires something like a salary cap in some sports in order to preserve competitive balance, how would that cap be administered? That's a really good question. And given that there are now about 180,000 Division I student-athletes, what is a financially sustainable way of fairly compensating some or all of those student-athletes? And the answer to that question is, I, I ain't got no clue. I ain't got no clue. Now again, you read more into that, and I didn't keep all of the quotes, and he's basically inviting a suit against the NCAA. Or, excuse me, not in, well, not inviting new ones necessarily, but inviting ones that are already in progress to come to him, because he knows where he's ruling on it. He pretty much already knows. He he flatly calls them employees. He calls for athlete uh, collective bargaining, collective representation. Which again, it's like, wait, dude, I thought you were stupid. I thought you were stupidly conservative. I didn't realize this was your feeling on this. What? Again, it's really it's really weird from a guy who's known to be really conservative to sound this liberal on workers' rights in one particular aspect. But then again, you know, this is what happens when you don't think about people as who they truly are. Complex individuals. And we gotta remember, these are complex individuals who somehow all came together, united, to say, NCAA, you can go fuck off. Um, but in reality, it didn't really say that. Uh, they just, again, it's my real final thing. This didn't destroy the NCAA. A lot of people are saying this destroyed the NCAA. It didn't. It didn't. It invited them to be destroyed, but, you know, it, it didn't kill them. No. Here's what it instead... Oh, by the way, Trey Turner's uh, contract details just came out. One year, three million dollars. So, yeah. There you go.
Um, so this didn't destroy the NCAA, really clarified things, told the NCAA that they could not be so damn restrictive with this one specific thing. Again, this is an educational benefits thing, and people are saying, oh my gosh, schools are going to get around it. Let, let me tell you something. Schools have never, ever, ever, ever had any sort of integrity when it came to this stuff. And they mentioned it in, like, Gorsuch decided to go through it. It was a really interesting read for the whole thing, for me as a really weird historian thingy. Um, like, because he mentioned the first true intercollegiate sporting uh, contest was a rowing race, and one of the prizes was unlimited alcohol, which frankly is the greatest thing ever. It was in 1852. So, you know, and the fact that we don't offer this anymore is a testament to the fact that it has been a long time since the year 1852. Um, but yeah, it mentions how, and this is the thing I'm well aware of as a hit you know, person who really enjoys funny stuff. Teams used to bring in ringers all the time uh, for college baseball and for football. I mean, if you know anything about the story of 222 to nothing... Okay, I get you guys out there need to be... Sorry, there are loud sirens going on outside. I don't edit these out because it's funny to me. Um, but yeah, you know, ringers. Not wooey wooeyers, but ringers, which are professionals that they would pay uh, to come in dress up as someone else. And they did this for a long time. Long, long time. This was in the 1900... And they did this in the 1880s. They did this in the 1890s. They did this in the 1900s and the 1910s and the 20s and into the 30s. Because it, it was common. It was a common thing. Paying players have been around for a long-ass time. Take it from me, a person who knows what it looks... Like, person who knows... Like, hi, family... was like, when, when, when members of your family are in trivial pursuit because Auburn got restricted because they paid one of them? I'm not going to mention whom, uh, but literally, like, this happened in 57, where you literally have two players, Auburn facilitates the payment for them, they never played Auburn, they played at uh, Tulsa, uh, Auburn gets a one-year postseason ban, they get a ban from the uh, UPI poll, the coaches poll now, um, they were the national champions, according to the Associated Press, um, and the next year, they're bopped with the same thing, which is recruiting violations, because again, and I think it's an assistant coach, I think it was the same assistant coach, uh, facilitating payments to players. And they weren't given the death penalty. They were given another postseason ban, I believe. I believe it was like a similar thing. Because the NCAA didn't have enforcement power. They only decided to flex their muscles when they wanted to keep teams off of television. That's it. Teams were openly paying their players in the 1950s, early 1950s. And when I say openly, I mean it was like it wasn't just like an open secret. It was just a known thing. And this has been true ever since. It's been true ever since. All right. So you got that. So what this did do is it flung the door open to many lawsuits. So ones that again have become more expensive because the NCAA has to go through that rule of reason analysis, um, and they can't just dismiss lawsuits because of you know. Oh, but we're amateur, or oh, we need ample latitude. It's like <laughs> ample latitude to go through a bunch of stuff and prove that this is necessary. That's what you have ample latitude to do. Pay up. Um, yay! Now that's not what I think is going to break the NCAA. Frankly, and let let's be clear about what the NCAA is. Again, it's a shield. It's a shield from the government. It's a shield from regulation. It's a shield schools used to make sure that they didn't actually have to face consequences. And it's worked, and it's made them a ton of money. And you wonder why Mark Emmert is still there even though he sucks at his job? It's because the one thing he does is he takes all the criticism for them. 
He takes all the criticism for the schools. They take it. He's the magnet for them. And it's brilliant if you think about it that way. Alrighty, that's what he does as a commissioner. Rob Manfred sucks at his job. Everyone hates Rob Manfred. Completely disregards the fact that there are like 20-something owners in Major League Baseball that are destroying the sport, and I'm about to get into that. Um, you got Roger Goodell. He takes the brunt of the criticism. It's the owner's fault. They make him commissioner. It's his job to be the guy, the fall guy. That's what. They, that's that's why they pay them millions of dollars. Th- their job isn't to be good at it. Their job is to be good enough so that no one comes after the schools directly. NCAA's done his job there. When it comes to name, image, and likeness, I don't know. I mean, apparently they got something in the works, which is going to be intriguing. Um, It is kind of hilarious that they decided to bank on Congress getting anything done as if they thought that Congress was ever going to do anything. Yes, because what should we bank on in order for things to work out? I know, expecting Congress to actually get their shit together. What, What world do you live in where you think that's reasonable? Come on. So... I think name, image, and likeness is where the NCAA is going to be having a make-or-break moment. And I put that in quotation marks, because again, NCAA, it's run by the schools. It is the schools. It's going to be tough to break it. But, you know, that's how it is. I don't know how this name, image, and likeness stuff is going to work. Uh, apparently they have things in the works. They're going to be going into effect on July the 1st. Although one of the things about it in there is that if they conflict with state laws, then the state laws supersede, which is like, I guess the only reason that this is to exist is so that they have a framework for like, okay, if you don't have a law in the books, here's something so that you can at least do something. But if you already have a law, then we're just not going to mess with it, which is a great idea. I mean, you know, it's a great idea until every single law comes into effect. And, oh my gosh, did you hear that, um, what Ohio did? So this is what happened on the podcast last night. A random thing. Uh, Ohio just fast-tracked it. And I don't know how it's going to happen in the Senate. But in the House, the Ohio State House, they affixed onto the NIL bill, uh, a bill that would ban trans women from, uh, women's sports. You know... Like, all good people should. Oh, wait, no, they shouldn't. This is, of course, being done only for cruelty. There is no other reason. Now, I know you may say that's an absolute statement, but, I mean, no, from any other perspective, we cannot... There is, like, no evidence that it does anything else. There is no evidence that it uh, makes competitive balance better. There is no evidence that it makes sports more inclusive. In fact, it literally does the opposite, based on the what you're literally doing in there. It's an exclusionary bill. And it was a, it was just a rider, and it got through the sa- uh, the house. It's going to the Senate. I don't know what's going on in the Senate there because I don't follow Ohio state politics, because I don't live in Ohio. I live in Louisiana, where we've already tried passing that bill, and I don't know if that got to the governor's desk. And I'm pretty sure he vetoed it, but I'm not 100 percent on that yet, because uh, you know the South. Anyway, that's all about that. Let's get into one last stuff thingy situation. Hey, remember that MLB uh, sticky situation thingy? Well, it's the first week. There's a loud noise outside. That's weirding me out. Okay, it's not weirding me out anymore. You know what is weirding me out? A dude dropping his pants on the baseball field. And that happened. Why did it happen? Because Major League Baseball has begun enforcing their new policy 
on sticky stuff and adhesives and all that. And, uh, in general, it's actually gone quite well. I, I know that sounds crazy, but it's actually gone quite well. Um, for most things, it's just a quick, you know, 15 to 20 seconds. Guy's coming off the mound. They ask him, uh, okay. So, here we go. Just... Okay, no, seriously, what the hell is that? Oh, that's rain. I didn't realize it was rain because I couldn't see it. Apologies for that. You know what, though? Rain. And that happened in about 15 to 20 seconds, just about as long as it takes uh, for the average pitcher to get searched, because all they do, they give over their cap, they give over their glove, they're asked uh, if they can have their belt buckle inspected, because those are the three major spots for it. It takes about 15 to 20 seconds, happens at the end of an inning, uh, they walk away. It's simple. Most teams haven't had a problem. Hi, Washington Nationals. Why is there a problem here? Why can't things go normally? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Joe Girardi is being a thing. What is Joe Girardi doing? Well, I don't know what he's doing right now, but I'll tell you what he was doing on Tuesday night. Oh, he was making a mess of things. So, um, Max Scherzer, he's a pitcher. He's not just any pitcher. He's a really good pitcher. He plays for the Washington Nationals, and they were playing the Philadelphia Phillies on Tuesday night. And what happened? Well, you see, Max Scherzer, he was annoyed that he had to be checked after one time. But, you know, it was natural. He was, like, ugh, annoyed with it. He didn't like it. But then came an incident where it was really annoying. You see, he was, he threw a pitch. He didn't like the pitch. He decides to take off his cap and, uh, you know, touch his hair and then put his cap back on, touch the rosin, take the ball, and then, you know, throw it. And then Joe Girardi decides to, you know, he wants to get, he's yelling, he's barking at the umpire to basically like, yo, go check him. He's totally cheating. He's totally cheating. And they check him and he's totally fine totally fine. Joe Girardi keeps barking and barking and barking, and oh my gosh, Max Scherzer was not very happy. Uh, Girardi eventually gets ejected from the game, by the way, because he keeps, you know, being an annoying person. Uh, which is a good thing, because annoying deserves ejection. That's what happened in the universe, in uh, the first game from Tennessee, where, and I kid you not, and I hate to randomly go off on a tangent, uh, the third base umpire ejected one of the coaches for the University of Tennessee, Tennessee had the first base dugout. Tennessee was on... That was just across the field, and he got thrown out. That's how bad it was. I think this was the Texas game, actually. Uh, the umpiring that game, by the way, was abysmal. So, you know, but still. Barking at an ump, you're going to get tossed. And Max Scherzer was not happy about it. And at one point, I don't think it was that point. I think it was another time, because he had inspected three times. He just pulled down his pants. Which is always a good thing to do. Did I say good thing? I mean, not not a good thing at all. You don't just pull down your pants on a baseball field. That's not a, like, ladies and gentlemen, here is an important, like, notification. Don't pull your pants down on a baseball field. It's just a really weird thing to do. And, uh, we've actually seen an ejection, not in, uh, Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, a Louisville Bats player got ejected, uh, because he had sticky stuff. Yep. That's not good. Uh, also, at one point, which is funny, I think Trevor Bauer helped out one of his uh, teammates. Uh, gave uh, So his teammate like had to get a new bat, and he needed some pine tar. And uh, you know, Trevor Bauer decided to help him with some sweat and rosin. You know what? It worked, because the bat was slipping out of his hand. You know? Teamwork makes the dream work. But yeah. So Scherzer comes out, and he's talking after the game. And he's basically saying, uh, so what? And he's like asked, like, what happened there? And he's like, okay. So basically, what I was doing was... 
I was in this situation where I had a baseball, and I threw it, and I didn't like it because I thought I was about to hit a dude in the face. I thought I was about to hit the batter in the face because the ball was going to slip away. So I did the thing I'm supposed to do. I did the thing that I know to do that will help me in this situation. I took off my cap, I rubbed my head, which was sweaty because, you know, baseball makes you sweaty. Uh, And then I rubbed it with the rosin bag, the thing that I'm given as a pitcher. Um, And then I threw the ball because I could, and for some stupid reason, Joe Girardi comes out and says something. Now, Girardi said that he'd never seen Scherzer do this before. I don't know who to believe, because I don't care. This is the dumbest situation possible. Now, here's the thing. Scherzer also happens to have a big voice, because he's one of the top guys on the Major League Baseball Players Association uh, board. I don't know if he's the top guy, but he's one of the top guys. So, you know, his his words matter a lot. His words matter a lot. Seriously, it is raining like hell out there. But someone's made a good Reddit theory. And this is going to be where we end off with this Reddit theory about how perhaps... Remember how I said this was bad and maybe you don't do this in a union negotiation year? Maybe that's exactly why they're doing it in a union negotiation year. So someone online, and I think this is a... I want to bring this argument up because when I was thinking about it, it's like, okay, this is actually not that stupid. Maybe it's why because it has to do with something that I'm totally not biased about. Uh, So this was an analogy of a landlord putting snakes in a broken elevator. So basically, you got this uh, big apartment complex. Let's say it's five stories tall. It's got this elevator in there, and it's broken, all right? And so everyone hates the fact that there are all these snakes in the elevator. Now, of course, no one can use the elevator, and everyone complains about the snakes in the elevator. And so the landlord, you know, listens to them. They're all up in arms about that, and so... Uh, you know, you're talking about renegotiating leases and all, and he's like, oh, oh, I was like, y'all didn't, we didn't sign up, uh, for a place, you know, with, with snakes in the elevator. And he's like, okay, fine. So we'll just re-sign this lease, and boom, no more snakes in the elevator. And, uh, doesn't fix the problem, the fact that the elevator is broken. In this situation, the snakes in the elevator are the rule changes, like the balls, uh, and the sticky stuff, and the elevator is player wages and the complete and utter destruction of the minor league system. So, here's the thing. You've got all this small stuff. You're getting players to try and go against each other. You want them in fighting. Alright? You want pitchers and batters hating each other. Because they're going to be focused on that, and they're not going to focus on the fact that most of the owners aren't in this for anything but the money. I take two teams in particular. You look at the Rockies. Rockies owners don't give a shit. Chi- they don't give a damn. They don't give a damn, they'll ship off players just because they want to keep their payroll low, because they're all about the money. You look at the Tampa Bay Rays, who have won in spite of their ownership situation. The Tampa Bay Rays, in the previous season, uh, in 2020, they had the second lowest payroll of any team in baseball. I think they were 29th out of 30 teams. They managed to make the World Series because they devised a system around it, where they used the opener strategy, where they had a bunch of guys. It was a cookie-cutter game plan over and over and over again. It was boring, but guess what? It was effective. They won in spite of the money. Because again, a lot of teams don't care. Jeffrey Lurie was a great example of an owner who didn't give a damn about anything but money, and somehow he was allowed to buy a second team after running the entirety of the Montreal Expos into the ground. Yeah, you know what? Let's just let him buy the, uh, Mar- I mean, the Marlins. That won't end badly. Oh, I see. So, he screwed everyone? Again? How could we have ever seen this coming? 
You bastards really did not care. And they don't. That's why Rob Manfred's there. Rob Manfred's there, again, like I said, he's just like Mark Emmer. He's there to take the blame for everything. He's there to ruin everything. He's there so that the owners have someone to point to like, oh no, it's him. It's him. He's clearly all the problems. He's bringing in all these stupid rules. And the players are just going to focus on that. And then they're not going to focus about the fact that, oh, uh, free agency is screwed. The minor league system's getting completely destroyed. Um, they've, I think the draft is now smaller. I think it's gone down to five rounds. It's really terrible. Um, player wages and salaries are stupid. Everything when it comes to the, like, actually being a good base, uh, baseball player, being a baseball player as an employee, I should say, they don't care about that. They're trying to get focus off of that and more into being the athlete playing the game. Trying to get the focus on that. That way, they don't care about the stupid shit. They don't care about the other shit. They care about the stupid shit. Excuse me. I had them mixed up. I mean, if that's what they're doing, and it is a very reasonable thing to think that they would want to try and get them off of the stuff that is bigger and is more expensive, then, uh, boom. Boom, ba boom, boom, boom. And if we have to do that for, what would the NCAA's difference be? Get people focused on name, image, and likeness so that they can cover up what? Abuses? Oh god, that's exactly what it is. I don't know. Maybe it's abuses within the system. Maybe it's just the history of neglect. Maybe it's just overworking people. I don't know what it is. But it's athlete exploitation. And I don't like it. But that's going to do it for this episode of Goal to Go. Once again, you can check out the live episode, which I've linked in the description of this episode. I'm going to go live on Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, again on Thursday, upcoming. That is, I don't even know what, excuse me one second while I check the calendar. That will be Thursday, the 1st of July, July 1st. Ah, yes, I do believe that is Best Shield Day, although I'm definitely wrong about that. I believe it's Canada Day. Either way, it's some sort of national holiday. Uh, for not the United States. But, until then, you can check me out on Twitter at capital B-E-N, capital S, capital L, capital A, capital S-P-O-R-T-S. You can find the live streams on twitch.tv slash T-E-P-I-G-L-O-V-E-R-1. That is twitch.tv slash T-E-P-I-G-L-O-V-E-R-1 every Thursday night at 9 Eastern, 8 Central. So until next time, I've been Ben Schluter. This has been Gold to Go. Hope you have a fantastic week, and until next time, bye-bye.